Hi everybody, JP here. Want to take a moment to tell you about St. John Associates. They're a great recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They've been around for over 30 years and they match thousands of physicians with practices and healthcare systems across the country. They have an experienced team that works in all specialties, including neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery, and they have close connections with employers across the country. They will look at your CV, They'll match you with practices based on your preferences for geography and lifestyle. And all of this comes at no cost to the physician job applicant. So just visit them at stjohnjobs.com slash nspod to get started with your job search today if you're in the market. Again, that's stjohnjobs dot com slash nspod. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, another installment in our series looking at uh, fellowships within neurosurgery. Today, I am excited and delighted to talk with Dr. Harry Mushlin. Uh, he did his residency at the University of Maryland, a program near and dear to our hearts here on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Uh, after completing his training, he went to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center for a Neurotrauma Fellowship, and now he's an attending at Stony Brook University in New York. Harry, I remember you from uh, my interview at Maryland all those years ago, and you were just a, a ball of energy and a great time throughout the interview process and at the dinner. So it's really uh, exciting and, and fun that you know life has brought us back together again to talk today. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, I think, uh, as you said, it's a long journey, and I'm just starting out my uh, career here, so it's uh, nice to talk to you about how I got here, yeah. Absolutely. Um, it is interesting, some of the fellowships we've been talking about so far, such as endovascular, and now we've talked about spine, they are absolutely sub-disciplines within neurosurgery, but there are also these fields where when you're graduating, you know, people make a big point and it's a big push to say that any neurosurgeon can do X, Y, Z. So in the old days, clipping aneurysms used to be the bread and butter of neurosurgery. And now, uh, as we've discussed on the show previously, uh, a neurosurgeon is a spine surgeon, is the big push from the spine section and leadership there. And so it seems like neurotrauma and decompressing acute injuries uh, to the nervous system, uh, hemicranies, that seems to be the bread and butter of neurosurgery that at least technically all of us should be able to do. So maybe Harry, you could talk to our listeners a bit about what you get out of a neurotrauma fellowship beyond what we all graduate with the capacity to do, or maybe why one would pursue that subspecialty training. Sure. That's, that is a good question. I mean, I think that first I'd say that spine and neurotrauma on an academic level, marry very well. And mm. so I think those two disciplines work together to, for someone who's looking for kind of a fruitful academic career at a big hospital. And the reason, yes, I think everyone should come out to be able to do emergencies. But the question is clearly, I think, the more higher level acuity traumas usually do end up at a level one. And so the consistency of care that should be offered to these patients isn't always clear. 
And I think the models that I trained under were people who were supremely invested in neurotrauma with Dijon Araby at Maryland and David Oconquo at Pittsburgh. And understanding that it's more than just taking off the bone. It's understanding, you know, the totality of the care of the trauma patient, sort of in the same concept that we think about it, there's whole trauma teams for general surgery. And that's all they do. And it's about consistency of care, caring about the patients, not just taking off the bone and then forgetting about them, but trying to optimize their outcome. And these patients sometimes don't get that attention. So in a neurotrauma fellowship, so just to clarify for you, what I really did was a spine fellowship with neurotrauma intermixed with David Oconquo. So what I did is I, I, I pursued a deformity and complex spine fellowship. And at the same time, I acted like a neurotrauma attending under the tutelage of Dr. Oconquo to help me subspecialize again and get extra training before becoming an attending to be comfortable and knowledgeable of the up-to-date literature on neurotrauma, to understand the intensity it takes to be consistent in their care and sort of maximize outcome. So that's how I would put that. So a neurotrauma fellowship for someone, particularly the Pittsburgh fellowship is the perfect combination of pushing yourself to do better for neurotrauma patients and if you're looking for it, I, you know, I did the spine edition with it. So the spine was the main focus, but neurotrauma was then interfolded one week, like a month of intense neurotrauma um, care to help, you know, propel myself to a, a higher level of, uh, of clinician. Hmm. Uh, I'll remind our listeners, Dr. Conquo has been on the show a couple of times talking about the trauma section within neurosurgery, the role of neurosurgeons as a public resource uh, treating trauma, and then more recently talking about acuity of care for spinal cord injury. Um, but that's a really interesting uh, structure that you describe, Harry, for the fellowship. So when you say, uh, you know, for those periods of times uh, intermittently throughout the fellowship, you were, quote, functioning as a neurotrauma attending, what did that look like? What was the day-to-day -day that differed from uh, you know, functioning in the spine space or your experience in residency functioning with other cranial attendings? What did it look like for you being a neurotrauma attending day-to-day -day at Pittsburgh? Yeah, so just to, you know, that plug for the Pittsburgh Fellowship, I mean, what it means is Monday you come in, you're reviewing all of the trauma patients that are on the trauma list as the attending, making the residents go through the patients, telling what happened, what the plans are, clarifying the injury type, clarifying what the plan is, really making sure they know the patient's down pat. And then after that, as the attending, um, attending fellow, we'd call it, right? So I was acting as the attending. They're my cases. They're my patients with, you know, with the uh, tutoring of Dr. Oconquo. But the, the point is that when you're acting like the fellow attending, it's to help you make those final decisions, make sure that you can help run the resident group. Um, it's rounding on the patients appropriately throughout the week. It's sitting down with the, they did something very unique at Pittsburgh, which was, which I have still not seen either at Maryland or here where I am now, but they had a great um, rehab uh, associated with their TPI unit. And on Thursdays, you'd sit down with the, the PM&R people along with the neurotrauma team and discuss which patients were ready to be transitioned, how they're doing, you'd get updates on how their patients are doing in the rehab facility, so sort of a real um, transition of care 
uh, for uh, these critically uh, uh, injured patients. And so that's really what it would look like. Um, and, and so it's just sort of being the go-to person making day-to-day -day decisions, not just like one random day out of seven, but throughout the week, really making sure that you're guiding the care of the patient. Now, was this something you were interested in coming into your residency? Or if not, when in, in your training did you develop this leaning towards or this interest in neurotrauma? Obviously, training at Maryland, you're at one of the great temples of, of trauma care in the country there at Shock Trauma. But I wonder when you got bit by this bug. Yeah, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think the answer is it's I, when you train at University of Maryland, the two things that stand out when I was training, and I know Maryland has expanded significantly since my departure, but we're, you know, spine and neurotrauma care are, I think, world-class. So um, early on, I realized that's what I, I liked the, the intensity of it. I liked the, um, the, the care of the patients. And to some degree, these are very desperate moments that we still have in, in, in neurosurgery. I mean, these are very injured people. And sometimes you really have surprising outcomes relative to your work. And so I think it's worth the full investment. And I just, you know, Dr. Araby in, at Maryland can be rather infectious. And mm -hmm. clearly the intensity at shock trauma can be infectious. And I think for me, that's what made me love it, you know, and, and kind of, and the truth is, like I said earlier, it was a, a well married to spine surgery. And so I also love, I think the other thing I'd highlight for you is when I think of neurotrauma, I think of brain plus spine. And so I'm thinking of my spine training from a trauma perspective and my brain training. And that's the other thing Pittsburgh offered me was to increase my exposure to spine trauma and care and to get a different perspective on that versus what I had at Maryland. So uh, I just want to sort of highlight that as well. Is that a, I think a good neurotrauma experience really should involve both things, um, brain care and also spinal cord care. So that's where I would, I would highlight. All right. Um, what does your practice look like now? Is Stony Brook a level one? Yeah, Stony Brook is a level one. Um, it is not the same level as Maryland or Pittsburgh, as you could imagine. I mean, Maryland and Pittsburgh are probably, you know, a top handful of the entire country for trauma level. But Stony Brook uh, is um, uh, an academic institution out on Long Island. It's the biggest of the SUNY research institutions in all of New York. So it has a very big university and a big medical center, and we're the level one trauma center for Suffolk County, which is, you know, like 1.5, 1.8 million people. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a big level one center. Uh, but the reason I came here was to take the things that I learned um, and try to slowly instill and bring a level of care to, uh, uh, to, our, to, our, trauma, to our trauma unit here. Um, uh, so that's what I would say. Yeah, so I'm curious now that you're in these early years of practice after your residency, after your, your fellowship training, what does that process look like of applying the things you learned in the fellowship and trying to establish a program or invigorate a program with the concepts you learned in your fellowship? Because I, I imagine there's 
always these limitations when you go to a new place. You know, if you want to do a complex spine, they need to have the equipment you need. And, you know, oh, I, I want an endoscope. I want a robot. I, you, you know, there's infrastructure. And then the patients need to come to you as well. And you could advertise that you're offering new techniques, but you still need to get the referrals and, and the patients need to come to you. But in the world of trauma, you're, you said you're the level one trauma center for the county, which is good. But I know in many cities around the country, in Chicago, for example, there are a number of level one trauma centers all within the city. So I imagine if you go to a setting like that to set up a practice and establish yourself in the world of trauma, there's some diffusion of patients where you can't really control which hospital they wind up at, but you need them to come to you to do all the things that you learned how to do in fellowship, right? So what does that process look like early on trying to establish a neurotrauma practice? Well, I, I would think about it differently, that my practice is spine surgery. My, hmm. my goal and the reason that what I bring and what I'm working on right now with other people who have feel the same way and championing it within our department is trying to improve our neurotrauma care. So what it's about is being a champion for the care that's provided at the hospital. So my entire practice is not neurotrauma. I take a lot right. of spine I take a lot of spine call and I take a lot of brain call. So that equals me doing a good one week a month plus of taking call caring for these patients. So it is a very critical portion of my practice. What I would say is that you're not what you're trying to do is improve the practice of the hospital. So mm. it's not about me capturing more patients. There's lots of patients. It's about me taking, especially where I am, because there's not the same level one within the county. So I'm not like in New York City or something like this. So, right. uh, so the point is that the, what, what you take your training to do is say, I've seen at the pinnacle of what it's supposed to be at. And this is how we're practicing it now at a very good place. But how can I bring what I learned to optimize our care. So what does that mean? It means it means it's not every, you know, neurosurgeon for themselves is us trying to come up with protocol, standardizing mm. consistency of care, updating the care that's provided, given that trauma care changes all the time, right? So if you look at the literature and you're like, we're based upon what you did just 10 years ago, things can change, especially mm. in a field like neurotrauma. We can we change our ideas of decompression. We change our ideas of the size of decompression what they should be getting for monitors, what they should be getting for prophylactic care. You know, all of these things change over time. And your goal is to create consistency across the board versus, you know, it's, it's every neurosurgeon's decision for themselves. So that, that's what I'm trying to get. But that's my goal here. And I think we're getting there. But it's to get it, come together as a group and offer. Well, a lot of places don't do it like Pittsburgh and Maryland do, do, which is that they have like more of a designated trauma group, right? Like this is the trauma attending. This is the right. trauma residency. And that's not always, that's, that's, that's not the norm, right? That's like the separate from the norm. Because like what you were hinting at is that oftentimes it's viewed as an extra, right? Neurotrauma is an extra that everyone can just do these emerging cases and you keep truck. But to treat it as a separate discipline is really the transition of, of, of care. Right. Um, that's very interesting. And it sounds like what you're describing is that these are systems level interventions where, you know, when, when we first started talking, you were saying it's not just taking off the bone, 
which is a great way to put it because that, you know, that's the technical side of things that um, any neurosurgeon should be able to do, but it's everything before and after the surgery that it seems like you're trying to bring up to a certain standard of uh, consistency and quality. Um, but in talking about those standards, you uh, touch on a huge uh, area within neurotrauma that I want to speak with you about, which is the research. And so I wonder, I, I know at places like Maryland, Pittsburgh, there are so many trials going on, registries constantly going on, um, quality improvement studies and adherence to those standards as you talk about going on. So what is it like now in your new practice at Stony Brook? Do you have the opportunity to continue doing research with your population of patients and get into networks? Um, what is it like from an academic standpoint with your trauma hat on, you know, at this early stage of your career? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough, right? Anyone who starts early in your career, half your battle is just doing a good job and getting yourself straight with your patients. And so I think you'll, I think a lot of people will discover that your first year or two is very much about being thoughtful, being safe, um, trying to uh, make sure that you're paying attention to the right things and overall making a name for yourself of good care and attentive care, right? You have to be available and you have to be able and you have to be mindful and all of these things early on can be overwhelming. Um, and what you're concentrating on is very good clinical care. So what I would say from a research perspective is that what I've done here is we're doing what was easier to start with, which is just getting, looking at starting to build databases. I mean, I'm coming into a very new residency. They don't have these things. I've mm -hmm. had the residents start to build out databases of our trauma patients, build out databases of our elective spine patients. So then we can slowly start to mine them. So we have a few pro small like, retrospective studies, like as you've probably experienced, of just starting to build on capturing what do we even know that we have here to study. So I really think that's like step one at, at a place that I'm trying to do here is make sure we at least know the cohorts of patients that we have, and then we can go back and mine these databases. In terms of more active research on, a, on that level of maybe prospective studies, um, that I have not engaged in just yet, but part of my goal is there are things like getting up and running our ability to do lumbar drains in patients so like we can do prospective studies looking at like spinal cord pressure and those types of things. But very early on, it's all about just installing the level of care, and then you can start doing the next, the next thing, which is, is actually studying your patients. But you have to get to the point of having consistency of the highest level of care that you want, and then you can do that next level. Um, I do know that I personally don't do it here, but one of our partners, I mean, I would plug uh, Dr. Chuck Michael here for doing um, high-level TBI uh, research where he's doing depth electrodes to help stimulate consciousness. So there are, that took him years to get off the ground, but we're trying to, you know, there, there are things that are on the table to help push our trauma care here. But the first thing is first, right? You got you to create consistency of high-level care, and then you can move forward with the other things. So that's what I would I would say. And you'll see that once you become a new attending, that there's a million directions to go. I'm not a lab person, right? I'm a clinical person, and I like teaching residents. So the first goal is to establish that high level of excellence, and then you can move forward. I think. Hmm. You know, neurotrauma. I think there's a interesting parallel between this and endovascular, where 
I've, I've said it before on the show that all of my friends who are interested in doing vascular and thinking about getting trained in endovascular, their great fear is, oh, I'm always going to be taking stroke call and I'll never yeah. be able to get away from stroke call because I have the capacity. So wherever I try to get a job, they're going to stick me with all this stroke call. And so neurotrauma, I feel like is inherently a subspecialty structured around taking call because these aren't things that you book. They're things that come in. Um, yeah. I wonder if you could speak to that fear a little bit, you know, talking towards residents who might be considering going down this road and sure. just let us know, you, is it true? And you just have to bite the bullet if this is what you care about, or is it not all that bad? What's the call like? <laughs> well, um, that's a good question. Every place is different. Right. And, and I think most places that are smaller share all the call. Here where I train, or where I work, I'm sorry, the spine call is divvied up between ortho and neuro. So I end up taking one week of call a month. And then I take a little bit extra here and there as well for other reasons. But the neuro trauma call is divvied up amongst all my faculty. So in fact, when you're on general call, you're on, uh, you're on neurotrauma call. It, it, my change is that I take neurotrauma plus spine call. So, I mean, general, general brain call plus I take spine call. So that equals, I think, a considerable amount more cases. So what I would tell people is, yeah, if you're at a level one center and you're a spine surgeon, plus you're taking the general brain call, that can be a fair amount. But the truth is I love doing it. So um, the one week a month that I'm doing that, I, I like having all those cases. I like being uh, busy. I like the intensity of the work. So you have to know yourself, right? You, you don't you don't pursue that if you don't like doing that. I mean, if you if it drives you crazy to do nine cases in a weekend, and you hate doing those types of cases, and you don't like doing, you know, a thoracic first fracture and also a crany that at the same time, you know, within the same weekend then that's not for you. I mean, you have to decide where your where your heart lies a little bit. And that's why a lot of people maybe pursue a level two, level three type job in private practice. That's fine. But yes, that's call can will always be a significant part of your life if you're at a level one center. And it's just inherent to being a neurosurgeon, I think. And so, I mean, that's part of our job, right? And that's part of your training is to learn to work like that because call is a lot. And you have to learn how to work through that and get those cases done safely and correctly. And so that's what I would plug. I like it, but yes, call can be a, a bit much, um, but it's not overwhelming. I mean, if you took every, uh, you know, if you took three weeks a month, that can be a lot. But, you know, once one, one week a month, I think is an appropriate amount. Right. Uh, and, you know, this was kind of built in there. But as we bring this to a close, we always like to ask people or, or give the opportunity to make a pitch for the, for the discipline. So um, obviously, as you said, you have to like doing the cases, like taking care of people, but maybe for anyone interested in actually getting fellowship training, but even if not them, any graduating neurosurgeon, who, trauma will be a part of your life. So make the pitch for why trauma is an important aspect of neurosurgical care and why we should all think and care about it more. Good question. And the answer is, that it truly is life-changing. And so good care changes lives versus poor care, which can actually hurt you. 
And so what I would make the argument for is that neurotrauma care, both from a spine perspective and a brain perspective, really is A, on the forefront of things that we don't know much about and how and can get much better at improvement. So it's a huge field for improvement, right? Pretty bare bones, actually, if you think about it. I mean, we just started just thinking about and implying and dealing with pressure in the spinal cord. We've been having brain drains and EVDs forever, right? We, we, it's a very slow progression in spinal trauma care and TBI care. So what I would tell you is that is that it really good care and the people who are thoughtful and want to push the field forward really can change your life. And you really can improve patients' outcomes for what is considered, you know, these are the most, some of the most devastating injuries in all of medicine. And so, you know, to make a difference in someone's neurological or motor outcome is very rewarding um, when, it, when, it, when, you have a, when, it, when it turns out like that. Yes, there's a lot of tragedy, but mixed in there, you have to be able to see some of the light and, and keep trucking. So at its core, it's really providing the, you know, modern medicine's best application for these devastating injuries. I mean, these are life-changing problems. And, and secondly, I just make a plug for the training portion is that neurotrauma is very important for your training and how to think quickly and how to be thoughtful in the moment and how to kind of, sometimes a trauma comes in and you have to fix a gigantic mess, right? A big problem, lots of bleeding, very unstable spine, a difficult anatomy because it's altered. I think it teaches residents and then, and then hopefully as they become attendings, how to be even better surgeons in that moment because you trained under a certain level of intensity that you weren't planning for. And I just want to make that plug as well. So I think from a training perspective, it's extremely important and should never be forgotten about. And then as an attending, I just, as I plugged earlier, um, what, what, what it can do for patients. And then just to wrap up a quick hot take, I always ask you know, the, the leaders, the heads of fellowship in these fields, this question, but I, I love asking people who are just graduated as well. What do you see down the road? What exciting developments in the field of neurotrauma? You mentioned uh, spinal cord perfusion pressure, but what, what can you anticipate becoming more of a common practice in the next five to 10 years? And then maybe if, if you've looked that far and considered that far, even in the next 15 to 20 years? <laughs> well, I think one of the things that we just touched upon is I do think that slowly and soon our greater standard of care will be better control of pressures in the spinal cord after injury. And so I think that that's where we're headed. I can tell you that um, it is certainly not the standard of care, uh, but I think we're headed that way. So I think in the next five years, I know there's big studies coming out and hopefully the next few years to, you know, looking at uh, larger uh, randomized trials of the use of lumbar drains and spinal cord injury, I do think we're headed in that direction. That that will be, you know, you get a spinal cord injury of, of X parameter, you will get a lumbar drain with these parameters for managing pressure. The same as we do for, for TBI, correct? And so I think that is where we're headed. I think it took a long time to get there, um, but that will be, I think, a standardized care that will be provided. And it won't be just sort of one institution doing it and one not doing it. Um, I think that hopefully we, you know, big picture, I think for neurotrauma and for spine, I would hope that we're headed towards more non-invasive measures of measuring pressure, right? I think that is something that will hopefully technology will improve on. I know that I'm looking at discussing with the biomechanical department here, ways that we can improve 
looking at non-invasive ultrasound to help us with pressure management and things of that nature. So I think that's one other avenue, big picture, that hopefully we're headed towards more non-invasive ways of measuring pressure, um, both from a brain and spine perspective. Um, I think that we have a lot of ways to improve our spinal care in terms of uh, determining what's the appropriate surgery. So something I would say and plug that I think about is saying that there seems to be a lot of variability in what we consider the proper spine surgery in neurotrauma. And I think we should start really having more consideration in the next 10 years about what X injury deserves X surgery, right? And what the goals are and unifying that across our discipline, which we don't have. Um, so those are the things that I think about in terms of being important in the next five to 10 years. Um, and, and, and that's how I put it. I think as we improve from a technology perspective and looking at particularly the brain injury, I think we're headed towards better prognostication, which has always been difficult. Um, I hope that as we improve our ability to be much more specific in our, in our anatomy and what's, what tracks have been damaged and how we interpret that will hopefully improve our prognostication as well. And hopefully, ability to, to uh, uh, improve TBI outcome. Phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Harry Mushlin, thank you for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.